It's good to be back amongst the living. Uh, sorry I missed you guys last week. Thank you, Jasper, again for uh, for filling in on such short notice. It's not a it's not a fun phone call to receive a phone call from the pastor at 7 p.m. Saturday night saying, "Can you preach for me tomorrow morning?" Uh, so, but Jasper did it, and uh, he did it without any complaining. So I'm grateful for grateful for Jasper and his leadership. Amen. 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 Well, we're, uh, we're going to continue today with stories. We had to take a break from it last week because of my sickness, but we'll, we'll continue with that this week. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 4 in those. If you're visiting with us, thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here, and we're, we're glad that you're with us today. We hope that you enjoy your time. And uh, yeah, so uh, real quick, if you are visiting or have been visiting for a while, or, or maybe you've never made membership uh, official with New Life Church Magnolia, you'd like to do that next Sunday afternoon on the 12th, March 12th, we're going to be getting together uh, here at the church at 4 p.m. to go through uh, what we call Membership 101. And so um, Membership 101 will take place at 4. That's usually a couple of hours. Your kids are invited to come to that. There will be child care uh, for them. But just make sure you sign up so we know how much... Uh, food to get. We know how, how many kids to prepare for and things like that. You can sign up at the welcome table before you go. Uh, and then if you're just interested in knowing more about the church, but you're not sure if you want to join yet, we invite you to come too. Come and, and take a look at it. Uh, and then if you've been going here for a really long time and, and you're involved in things, but you've never uh, made it official that you're a member here, uh, you've never gone through the class, we invite you to come to that as well. So it's really for a lot of different people. But y'all Y'all come. We look forward to doing that. We've been working hard on that membership material, and uh, I, I think we've about got it where we want it for now. Uh, amen? <laughs> so anyway, yeah, there you go. <laughs> the guy who's in on the struggle with me knows. All right. Uh, so stories. Uh, we're going to look at Abraham today. And so Abraham spans uh, several chapters in Genesis, as, may, as some of you may be aware uh, but we're going to look at, at that. And so we've been going through, we started stories a few weeks ago. We've been going through the stories. What we're doing is we're saying, uh, we're preaching through these Old Testament stories that may be familiar to you, but we're showing how these things were always meant to point to Jesus. These stories are never meant to be just uh, stories that sit alone in the Bible. They're not just random stories that were collected in a book called, uh, and then categorized into a place in the Bible called the Old Testament just for you to kind of go to every now and then. That's not what they're intended for. These stories uh, have very real meaning for us today. Uh, a lot of what we're doing today is because these Old Testament stories took place, because of what God was doing throughout the Old Testament. And so it's great for Christians to familiarize themselves with the Old Testament, to understand as much as you can of the Old Testament, to understand these stories that maybe a lot of you spent time learning as youth, uh, and how they're pointing to Jesus, how they're all telling one big uh, story. And so that's the story of redemption. So this will take us to Easter, where we'll just, on Easter Sunday, we're just going to preach a, uh, a huge gospel message on uh, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And, and so we're going to get to that point. Hope to show you how we get there. Uh, before we dive into some stuff on Abraham today, let's pray and just ask God to anoint our time together. Father, we Thank you for the opportunity to gather today as believers. We thank you for your word. We thank you that this book is, uh, that it is alive, that it uh, pierces the very depths of our souls. And so, Father, uh, as 
odd and scary as that may sound, it's not. It's good for us. And so, Lord, we come before you with humble hearts, knowing that we don't have all the answers, knowing that we don't have it all figured out, knowing that we're sinful uh, even today already. And so we ask, Lord, for, by your grace that you teach us today, that you make us wise where we're not wise, give us understanding where we lack understanding, uh, help us to walk in uh, the knowledge and power of your word today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, as I was growing up, I, I was a real, uh, I, I was such a worrier. I, I was afraid of things. You can just ask my parents. I was really anxious just about random stuff. I know it's hard to believe now if you look at me and I've got this manly physique and, you know, I'm, I'm real masculine like I am. So uh, I know it's hard to imagine, but it's true. I, I was a worrier. I was afraid. I was kind of anxious of, of just everything. I, I blame unsolved mysteries, right? Countless episodes of unsolved mysteries caused irrational fears in my life. And when I say irrational, I mean irrational. Like I used to worry that Bigfoot followed me around my neighborhood, like watching me. And then when I would go to sleep at night, I just knew that he was outside my window looking in the window. And so I was, I'd be terrified. I'd go climb into bed with my sisters or my parents, just afraid of, of, of nothing really. Right. And, and so, and then thunderstorms, right? How many of you got kids that are afraid of thunderstorms? It's awesome. Isn't it? And, and so I, I was that kid that was terrified of thunderstorms. How many of you are afraid of thunderstorms? Don't raise your hand. It's okay. All right. So, um, Anyway, I was terrified of thunderstorms, and, and Lord help us if the tornado alarm ever went off, right? I, I'd be the first kid into the hall closet screaming at my parents who were outside on the front porch. Why do we do that anyway? When, when tornadoes are coming, we're like, oh, let's all go outside and see where this big massive whirl of wind is coming. Maybe it won't hit us that way, right? Uh, but I do that now, right? I'll, I'll go outside. I'm not afraid of storms anymore. I grew out of that, thankfully. But I'll go outside and I'll look. I'm like, maybe it's my manly physique will keep this thing away from me or something. Anyway, I'm not sure what we're doing. But I can remember um, being afraid of all sorts of things. And I begin to grow out of some of those things. And now anxiety and, and fear, if you will, or anxiety and, and worry looks a little bit different for me now than it did back then, right? It's taken on some new forms. And so what I mean by that is uh, I've grown out of the, the fears of, of Bigfoot and storms. And, uh, and so now I notice these things in a, different, in, a, in a different light, mostly when I'm really overwhelmed, when I'm trying to do too many things at a time when I've got my, my hand in, in too many pots, if you will, and, I, and I'm trying to, to do a lot of things, maybe that I was never even intended to do anyway, uh, but I just try to take on too much. I think I'm better maybe at things than I am, and so I, I find myself, when I get overwhelmed like that, I just feel almost paralyzed. Anybody, you don't have to raise your hand, but does anybody know what I'm talking about? You kind of get to that point where you're just overwhelmed with life, maybe, with the things that are before you, and you find yourself almost paralyzed, like I can't do even the simplest of tasks right now because I'm so overwhelmed by the things that are going on. This happened to me uh, just a few weeks ago, just to be a little bit transparent with you this morning. Uh, about four weeks ago, I was working on the sermon, and, and it just I had a lot of other things that needed to get done that week, and I just couldn't get to them. And, and I couldn't get to them because I couldn't focus to write the sermon, to study the sermon well, to write it and get it to a place where I was, where I was happy about presenting it. And so I remember getting up, I'd walk away from my desk, I'd kind of walk around in here in the sanctuary, and then, I, then I'd go back or I'd walk away, I'd get kind of a snack. And I even walked outside and walked around the building once. I was like, I, I've just got to clear my mind, I've got to... I, you know, I was doing everything that I could do to make that better until finally I just reached this breaking point where I felt like 
uh, I, I was just full of all kinds of emotions. There was anger. There, there was a little bit of disappointment, right? Like, why can't you do something that seems so simple? Uh, there was a, a little bit of frustration uh, taking place, uh, some sadness in, in realizing that I just, I'm not going to be able to do everything I need to do this week. And so I found myself getting really anxious, and then this doubt just began to creep in and fill my mind. I began to question, like, my calling. Like, am I really supposed to be doing this? I mean, it was just a really bad week. I was under attack. And I, and I remember thinking all of those things, and what it led me to do, it led me finally to go before the Lord. And it's not that I hadn't prayed, but it led me to go in a more intentional manner to just lay before the Lord and say, God, I can't do all of this. I can't do this. I need you. And I just remember being really broken. And as I'm laying there, it drove me to this place of asking God for answers. God, why can't I do all of these things? What's wrong with me? What is it in me that I can't accomplish these things? What's keeping me from thinking about the sermon in a way that I could write it and it sounds uh, it's, it's legible, right? So somebody could actually read this and understand what I'm trying to say. I began to ask these things, and, I, and then what I realized is that I was trying to do all of those things under my own power. I had placed all of my faith in myself in that moment, during that week. I would placed all my, my faith in me, my abilities, whatever, however small they may be. And I thought, I can do this. I can do this. And so I, I became very proud before the Lord, in a sense, became proud in the work that I do, and I begin to think, man, I've got this. I can make the steps necessary to make this happen, and I just couldn't. <laughs> and so God, uh, in His sweet, gentle, uh, right way, reminded me, you can't do these things. You, you were never intended to do all of these things on your own anyway. And so I learned, again, in that moment that my faith was in me, it wasn't in God. My faith was in my own strength. It wasn't in God's strength in me. My faith was in my own abilities. It wasn't in God's abilities in me. And so if I was ever going to do the things that God was calling me to do, I needed to rely on the guy who was calling me to do those things. Amen? I need to rely on the Father. And so my desire was for me to be God of my life, it was for me to be in control of my life. How many of you know that goes back to the very first sin, right? Did God really say that you can't do this? Well, he didn't mean that. He just knows that you'll be like him. Amen. And so we are born with this desire, and we see it daily if we'll pay attention. And I want to talk about that so much today is I want to talk about faith and where our faith rests today. I think a problem that we'll face today is that uh, we put faith in ourselves. We'll place our faith in ourselves, and that puts us in a place where we'll be crushed. As I was being crushed, we'll be crushed under the weight of our constant failure to be God because we can't be God. Amen? And so we'll be crushed by those things. And in this place, you become the object of faith. You become the object of your faith. Your faith is in you, and so you'll try to take matters into your own hands without ever asking uh, or, for, or seeking God's direction. And so I think the remedy for this, as with all things, is a right understanding of just how big God is, just how magnificent He is. And so this is where the Old Testament plays a huge role for us, because the Old Testament is full of stories about guys and gals who believed things about God just simply by faith. 
ultimately believing that one day he was going to save them, although they didn't yet know Jesus' name. They didn't yet know how that was going to take place, yet they believed God. And as we'll see with Abraham, that belief was counted to them as righteousness. And so I want to talk through those things. I think instead of placing faith in ourselves, we should place faith, our faith in a big God. And when we place faith in a big God, our faith is then rightly placed. It's in the right place in that, uh, in that space. And so I think Abraham is a great example for us here. I think what we'll see uh, with Abraham is that he showed great faith throughout his life. So let me give you just kind of a quick summary. I mentioned earlier that, that uh, this story of Abraham takes place, uh, the, the bulk of it takes place between Genesis 12 and Genesis 25. So uh, again, if I were to ask you to turn there and let's start reading all of that together, uh, you'd get up and walk out, right? Nobody wants to hear 13 chapters of the Old Testament read to them. I understand. It's good stuff, though. Uh, but So we're not going to do that. But here, let me give you some summaries of this, and then we'll talk through those things. Um, in, starting in chapter 12, a man named Abram, so this is before his name changes, receives a promise from God stating that he will be the father of many nations. How many of you have ever heard the song Father Abraham, right? Yeah, you know how to wag, wag your right arm, your right foot, and all of that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. This is where it comes from, okay? Uh, that he'll be Father Abraham. Now, this promise is in direct contrast to Abraham's current state. Uh, or to Abram's current state when he receives this. Abram uh, does not have land, so for him to be called the father of many nations first means that he'll possess great land. He doesn't have that to, uh, available yet. He also has a wife that is barren, and, and so they've tried having kids, can't have kids. Uh, and, and so it's in direct contrast to those two things. His wife and he are fairly old. He's 75. She's about 65 in this t- when this promise comes. And, uh, and then again, she's barren. So nevertheless, God sees those things, he knows these things, and he makes his promise. Amen? Abram then departs, as God tells him to, and he arrives in a land called Canaan. God promises him that this will be his land and that he'll possess all of this. Uh, and then again, he promises him many descendants. And, and so the verbiage that is used is uh, uh, God asked Abraham to count the stars. And of course, Abraham can't count all of the stars. And so uh, and then he looks at the dust of the ground and he says, your descendants will be as the dust of the ground. And of course, you can't number that as well. So what he's saying is it's a really big promise. Amen. There's a really big promise here. And so Abram uh, departs. He goes and sees this land. And although they're still childless, God says, you'll still, pos- you'll still have many descendants. And so uh, in chapter 15, you can pick up and you'll see that Abraham believes God when he promises him a son and a great nation. And then in verse 6 of chapter 15, it says, it was counted to him as righteousness. So here we see that Abraham believes God, or Abram believes God, that he's trusting God. Uh, And then in chapter 16, I just think this is so true of our lives. In, In chapter 15, you have Abraham trusting God, believing God. In chapter 16, 16, you have Abraham and Sarah growing anxious, right? They're they're beginning to doubt. Sarah's like, I'm not getting any younger. I understand God's making these promises. I'm not sure I'm going to be the one that gets to see this. So why don't you take my servant Hagar and lay with her? And and we'll try to do what God's wanting to do. We'll we'll try to help that out, right? I mean, that's what they're doing. They're trying to take actions into their own hands and, and begin to make this happen. And so Abraham and Sarah, they grow anxious. They doubt God's 
promise, so much so that they, they begin to take, it, take the, the matters into their own hands. Sarah convinces Abram to father a child with her servant, which results in even more conflict. You can read it there again. Like I said, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, and so as often our own attempts do when we take matters into our, our own hands, it causes some conflict. Then in chapter 17, we see Abram gets a new name. He goes from being called Abram to Abraham, which means father of the multitudes. He also receives the promise of seed uh, and soil again, this, this seed, uh, these descendants, and then all of this land. And this time, though, the promise comes with a covenant of circumcision. Now, circumcision was God's way of identifying who uh, was in on the promise and who wasn't. And so the instructions were that on the eighth day after birth, you would circumcise uh, your son. But it also had to be done, per God's instructions, to Abraham himself and to all of the men that were among his people. So it's at that point where God's recommending circumcision that you begin to ask, do you have any more of those rainbow covenants, God? Right? What happened to the rainbow covenant that you gave Noah you're giving me this covenant of circumcision. I'd like to try another uh, covenant. Are there any other options, right? And so I, I just can't imagine the conversation there. We won't dive into it because it'd be irreverent. But uh, to have to go back to this group of men and say, all right, guys, here's what God told me we're going to have to do, right? I just can't imagine that went well. So, uh, And then what we see also in chapter 17 is that Sarah uh, receives a new name, which is also Sarah, but with a different spelling, which means princess over the multitudes. So originally it just meant princess, then it was changed to princess over the multitudes. After receiving their new names, they again received the promise of a child, yet this time Sarah and Abraham actually laugh at God. They begin to laugh at him because they're like, we're old. This is at this moment of this, uh, at the covenant of circumcision, all this, Abraham is 99 years old. And so he's beginning to think, this is nearly 25 years after uh, the original promise. He's beginning to think, it's just, are you serious, right? They just kind of laugh. And so God responds with this. He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too difficult for the Lord, right? This was his response to their laughter. And so you can see here a, a picture of a really big God, amen? He knew what he was getting ready to do. Chapter 21, we see that Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. She's 90, he's 100. This is 25 years after the promise that God fulfills the promise. So if God makes a promise, what can we do? We can trust him to bring the promise to fruition. Amen? We know that this is going to happen, but it'll only be according to his timing and according to his will, which is what gets us in trouble, right? We want it on our time and with under our will a lot of time. God wasn't done uh, testing the faith of Abraham, though. In chapter 22, what we see is that God tests his faith by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. So if you think about that, first of all, it's, it's an awful thought to have to sacrifice your son, period. But if you tie the promise to Isaac, which is who the promise was tied to, what you begin to see is that God is asking Abraham to sacrifice not only his son, but the promise that was given to him. Amen? This promise of a seed and great nations to follow. And, and so in Abraham's mind, he has to be thinking, well, if I do this, then I'm, I'm getting rid of, I'm abolishing 
this promise that God has made to Sarah and I, that, that I would be the father of a great nation. And, and so he not only is putting on the line his son's life, but he's putting on the line the promise as well. And so he gathers everything that's needed. They, they head up to begin to make a sacrifice. And all of you know the story, right? He begins to raise the knife over Isaac. At this time, I'm sure Isaac's freaking out. I can't imagine, again, I can't imagine these conversations that are having to take place. Uh, and as he's doing it, there's a, a ram that God provides there kind of in that final moment to, to take the place of Isaac. Now, again, uh, just real quickly, you have the foreshadowing of Jesus, right? This, this spotless lamb who would be provided by God himself to take the place. So God is not asking Abraham to do anything that God is not willing to do himself, which is to crush his own son. Amen? And so in doing so, in Abraham not crushing his son and God saving Isaac, a great nation is preserved, a nation that we by faith are a part of. Amen? That is preserved. But in God crushing his son and not crushing us as he was so uh, deservedly could do, as we so deserve, he, he could be justified in doing, he preserves a great nation. Amen? He wins for himself a people by faith. And so you can see the contrast taking place between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, how the Old Testament is always pointing forward to Jesus in the New Testament. Amen? And so God intervenes. He keeps Isaac alive uh, by providing this ram. And and I'm just fascinated. I, I encourage you to go and read it. I wish I could sit here and read it all to you today. But I encourage you to go and read through Genesis. Just begin to see how all of this began right? How the people of God started and, and where it started and all that God did to make it happen. It's incredible. And then don't stop there. Go to Exodus. It's, it's even better. It's even more wild and amazing to read. And so it'll stir you up. It'll stir your faith up. You'll begin to see just how big God is. Amen? Like, like the God who causes a great nation to come from a woman whose womb was barren is the God that you serve. Is the God who is over all of your problems, all of your life, and He looks at you and He's interested in you in the same ways that He was interested in Abraham. Amen? And He's made promises to you, but you won't know those until you read His Word. You can't stand on those until you read His Word. So I think there's a nature of faith that, that kind of threads throughout the story of Abraham, and Paul, better than anybody, highlights this in Romans chapter 4, which is why I had you turn to Romans chapter 4. That wasn't a, uh, a mistake. And so in Romans chapter 4, starting in verses 17, uh, we'll, we'll read and we'll kind of pick up here on the nature of true faith. We'll begin to see some things about this. Uh, in verse 17, we'll read a little and stop. It says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He's talking about Abraham, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So the first thing I want you to see is that the object of faith must be God alone, right? And you can write that in your notes. If you're taking notes, you can write that there. God alone must be the object of faith. And so what we just see here, what we just read here in verse 17 is that the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist was clearly the object of Abraham's faith. And so we must get the object of our faith right before we can get anything else right. Because like I confessed to you earlier a few weeks ago, the object of my faith was me. 
Did I set out to make me the object of my faith intentionally that day? No. <laughs> right? It's not something I wanted to do intentionally. It was actually by being unintentional that I became the object of my faith. I began to rest on my strengths or on my weaknesses, and I began to be crushed under those things. And so we must get the object of our faith right before we move to anything else. Faith will be of no benefit to us if it's placed on the wrong person. It must be placed on Christ, on God Himself. And so Abraham's faith isn't amazing because of how great it was. Sure, it's great, but we see where even Abraham strays from it a few times, right? Where where he begins to doubt, he begins to laugh, he begins to question these things that he's being told. And so it's, it's not that Abraham's faith was just amazing and that ours isn't. It's amazing faith. But it's that, that because the, it's amazing because the, the object of that faith was God alone. He placed his faith in God. And so what we know is that we all have faith to give. We all have faith to be placed somewhere. The question is, where are you placing your faith? Do we place it in ourselves? Do we place it in relationships? Do we place it in our parents? Do we place it in our spouses? Do we place it in friends or family members or coworkers? Do we place it in our careers? Do we place it in stuff that we're able to acquire? Where is it that we place our faith? Is it in God alone or is it in something else, namely us? I think that all of those things will fail. Nothing stands perfect through the test of time except for God himself. No one will ever not fail you. (laughs) Everyone will always fail you in some sense. God alone will not fail. He does not fail us. He keeps his promises perfectly. He's the only thing, the only person you can fully trust, that you can fully rely on. And so Abraham understood, I think, two massive things about God. Number one, he understood that God gives life to the dead, right? I I think we see this a little bit in this picture with Isaac as he's got the knife raised over Isaac. He has to know that if God has made this promise, he's given me this son, that God is going to somehow make this promise continue even if I kill Isaac right here. And so maybe in in, in Abraham's mind, he's thinking that if that means that God raises Isaac from the dead right here, I know that God will keep his promise because this is his promise. Abraham's faith caused him to believe that God gives life to the dead. The second thing we see is that he understood God to be one who calls into existence those those things that do not exist. And so God creates from nothing all that exists. Genesis 1-1 is very clear on this, that in the beginning, God created. What did he create it out of? There was nothing. God spoke into being these things that exist. Amen? This is how powerful God is. And so Abraham's faith rests here. A commentator by the name of R. Kent Hughes says this. He says, if our view of God is as big as Abraham's, if we see God as so vast that he creates things from nothing and gives life to the dead, if you and I really believe this, it will make a huge difference in our faith and approach to life. Amen? How many of you know that's true? Right? If we can believe that God raises the dead, and that he causes those things to be which may not be, if we can hope in a God who does those things, 
according to His will and according to His purposes, then we can fully trust Him no matter what we're going through. I think salvation should be our number one reminder. What we know about our self is, is that Ephesians 2 is very clear on this, is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, right? That, that there was no spiritual life in you at all. That you were following the ways of Satan. That you were sons and daughters of disobedience. And what we see is that there is no spiritual life existing in us, but a God who creates faith in us calls those things that are dead or us who are spiritually dead, He calls us to life. But God, being rich in mercy with great love with which He loved us, has made us alive in Christ Jesus. Amen? And so it says then in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and then it says in verse 9 of that faith, that that faith is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And so we, we literally are saved, we're brought to life by a God who brings things to life which are dead and creates something in us which was not there before. Amen? What a great reminder that we as believers carry with us daily that we serve a big God. Amen? He's huge. He causes faith where there is no faith. He creates new life where there was no life. And so the question that follows this is, is God the object of your faith? And if He is the object of your faith, do you see God as being big, like sovereign in charge of all things, or do you see Him as being small? And it's just somebody that you run to occasionally, like I did a few weeks ago. Where it's like, oh no, I'm, I'm being crushed now. I better go to God. <laughs> it's so easy to fall into this. Our, our tendency is to wonder. Our tendency is to stray away from the Lord. Amen? It's good for us to know this about our hearts. We're just naturally wanderers. The second thing about faith, the nature of faith, is uh, there's an obstacle to it. That obstacle is doubt. The obstacle is doubt. I'll read verses 18 through 20 here. It says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And so Abraham's faith, Abraham's faith was uh, it faced two obstacles. Both were related to doubt. One is Sarah's barrenness, uh, and then the, the other is just the almost unbelievable big promise of God. I mean, God gives him a, a really huge promise. Father of a multitude of nations shows him the land of Canaan. This will be all of yours and for your descendants to possess this land. He, he begins to see these things. And so the less obvious of those obstacles to me may have been the staggering promise uh, from God of the land and descendants as, as numerous as the stars of the sky and the dust of the ground. So through, um, through the many years of waiting and, and failed attempts to help God out, it says here that Abraham kept the faith. Maybe the greatest obstacle, though, would be the barrenness of his wife. 
right? Like, God, how in the world are you going to do this? Because they, they tried, right? They tried to kind of circumvent God's promise. Here, let's, let's help make this happen through Hagar, and it didn't work out that way. And, and so even though he considered himself a dead man, he, his faith remained. Now, many think that faith means, I, I hear this a lot, many think that faith means ignoring the facts in front of us, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like, if you're going to have faith, it means that we have to totally ignore the facts that are in front of us. Right? You need to just look over those things and just see what God's going to do. Like, it's not, that's not what biblical faith is. R. Kent Hughes says this about biblical faith. He says, biblical faith is a composite of reason and faith. He says this about Abraham. He says, Abraham weighed the human impossibility of becoming a father with the divine impossibility of God being able to break his word and decided that if God was God, nothing is impossible. Amen? And that's biblical faith. It's to laugh in the face of God because of our circumstances and then to hear God say, is anything too hard for me? And to trust Him when He says it. Amen? Because we're all going to laugh in the face of God from time to time. We're all going to think that His promises are, are they're great for other people. Like, I, I've been that guy my entire life. I can, I can gladly, happily, excitedly proclaim the promises of the Bible for you and your family. When it comes to me, I'm like, I don't deserve that, <laughs> right? I, somehow I've got to earn that. I've got to measure up to that. And God's like, no, this is, these are free. These are gifts. Just like salvation, these are gifts for you and your family. These are gifts for you and your household. These are gifts for your spirituality, for you to grow and to be molded into who I'm calling you to be. Amen? And these are the things that we have to remember. These are the things we have to keep before us because it's so easy to doubt God. But Abraham, he believes God. And it says here, against all human hope, that Abraham kept hoping in God's promises. He, he believed, and so he became what? The father of many nations. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. So if God is who He says He is, then none of His promises will fail. Our obstacle then is doubt. I think that all of us, in the back of our minds, we are suspicious that what we say we believe about God's power isn't true. And so we doubt God's power. We doubt God's ability to do what He says He's going to do. In the back of our minds, we're suspicious of these things. And so we land in this place of kind of tending to rely on ourselves. Like, I don't know all that God promises. I don't know what God's will looks like in this thing, but I, I know what I can do here, right? So I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to try to walk the way that I think it should go and, and do the things that I think it should do. And all the time, God's, God may be laughing at me, right? Like, look at little Kyle trying to do these things that only I can do. Bless his heart, you know. I'm sure God says that. So, <laughs> I think some of us need to take, me included, we need to take deeper hold of the truths that we've already believed about God. But they're not just intellectual truths anymore. They're not just these things that I've read and these verses I can quote in times of trouble. It's not just that anymore, but now it's down here. And, and that when I find myself anxious and worried, and doubting God, my soul has hope. My soul finds strength in ways that I haven't been able to find it. 
And I can stand in those moments and say, no, God is God. Like I see these obstacles. I'm not choosing to ignore these obstacles. I know these obstacles are there. What I'm choosing to do is to trust God's promise because I know that he will not fail. And so the other thing is, I think you can't be tied to a result that you've drummed up in your head. I think this is the danger of faith is that we want to say we have faith, but we want to place a result on what that faith looks like. And so if that result doesn't happen, then our faith wasn't great enough. But the Bible is very clear that the faith of a mustard seed, this little bitty amount can move a mountain figuratively. So if God grants us faith, if he gives us faith, then that faith is enough. Amen? And so we trust God because of that faith. And we don't get to say, all right, I'm going to have this career or this job. I mean, that's just positive. That's the power of positive thinking is all that is. And then you're tying it to God. That's not God. Amen? And so when you do that and you begin to fail, you're going to think God's failing you and God never failed you. He may be giving you exactly what you needed. So we have to be careful there. You have to be careful. There's a prosperity gospel. I'm sure all of you know this, right? Health, wealth, and, and, and all good things. There's nothing bad about life at all when you live according to this prosperity gospel. And there's nothing further from the truth. Nothing will cause you to fall flat on your face quicker than a gospel that doesn't exist. But when you trust that God is God, you know that He's God and you can make it through the loss of a child. You can make it through the loss of life or of spouse or of job or of anything that you go through because you know that no matter what, it's not health and wealth and good feelings that will make you through that. It's God Himself. It's God who has the power to hold me and to keep me. It's not tied to the amount of my faith. It's just that I have faith. Amen? God desires to keep you. God begins a work in you. It says that He's faithful to complete it. So often we fail to trust God. God's not out to punish you. He's not out to get back at you. He's not trying to do any of that. God is for you. He's for us even in discipline. In the same way that you're for your kids, even in discipline. He's for you, even in success, in the same way that you are for your kids in success. But God knows better. God is all-knowing, we are not. God is all-powerful, we are not. God is at the end, we are not. God is at the beginning, we were not. So everything falls under the governance of God's power, His absolute sovereign will. Amen? And to me, that is the most precious truth I can know about the bigness of my God. Is that I can't always explain things, and I don't have to. Corinthians is clear that for now we see into a mirror that is dimly lit, but that one day in heaven with Christ, perfectly glorified, we'll see perfectly. And we'll look back and be like, God, thank you for not giving me that promotion. 
Thank you for sparing my child that world of hurt. And I can't explain it other than to know that God is good. I'll just say he's good flippantly. Like he's, he's really, really good. I think this leads us to the objectives of our faith. There's two objectives. I'll work through these pretty quickly. The first objective is faith was a way, was Abraham's way to glorify God. And so we saw this at the end of verse 20 there. It says, uh, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. God is never glorified in a believer's life apart from faith. Hebrews 11 makes this clear where it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Again, this isn't tying it to a great amount of faith. It's just faith, just trusting God. And so it's this full dependence on God. My favorite example is to sit in a chair. I should have brought a stool up here, but anyway, when you sit in a chair, you rest what? Your full weight on that chair. You're placing your full dependence in that chair. If the chair breaks, you look silly. If the chair holds you, you just look normal, right? We've placed our full we placed the full weight of my our being and our faith on God when we rest in Him, when we trust His goodness above anything else. And, and so may we, with Abraham, glorify God in the same way by taking Him at His word. The second objective of His faith was righteousness. We see this in verse 22 of Romans 4. It says that that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And, and so that kind of rounds off the description of Abraham's faith by saying that it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith that, that makes one righteous before God is a faith that sees a big God one who raises the dead and creates things from nothing. Also, faith that makes one righteous doesn't deny obstacles. It's not just blindly overlooking obstacles, but it's saying, it's evaluating them in the light of God's Word and power. It's saying to those obstacles, I see you, I recognize you, but God's Word is always true. And so somehow, some way, even with these obstacles, he's going to do his will. It will be done because God is bigger than these things. They may not magically disappear. You may not get to see the obstacle disappear in your lifetime. How about that? <laughs> right? It may be something that disappears generations after you. It may be something that God brings to fruition well after you're gone and you're in heaven rejoicing. Amen? That's part of being a faithful saint is knowing that my little 80 to 85 to 95 to maybe 55, you just don't know, but my little existence is only a part of the big story. It's not the big story. Amen? That This big story continues. It was before me. It'll continue after me. It's not rising and falling on me. Praise God. I'd screw it up. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> you know me. <laughs> Amen. I'm with you. So, finally though, I think faith that makes one righteous brings the full assurance that what God has promised, He will perform. 
Faith is the only way that any of us will ever be righteous before God. Amen? It's, it's just simply by placing our faith in Him. Now, for those of us who can read a text like this and be like, well, that's an ancient book. These are ancient writings for you know Paul's day or for Abraham's day. Verse 23 through 25 clears this up. He says this, he says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Somebody say amen. amen. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Praise God. Out of the, the, the little man named Abram, thousands of years ago, God makes a promise. He makes a promise of seed and soil, but more than that, a great nation. What this great nation would mark would be a nation, a people of faith. You and I, by faith, are now joined to Abraham and his descendants. Amen? We're now a part of this family of faith. We can have righteousness by faith. We are not only God's friends, but now we're his sons and daughters. Our present status will one day bring an entirely new state, which is that eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that awaits us in heaven forevermore. Amen? This is what we are to believe. We're, we're to put our faith in God who raised up Christ, who died for our sins and was resurrected for our justification. To believe in that is to believe in the God of Abraham. Amen? You stand to your feet this morning.